We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading our favorite books. Let's talk about one of the cooler characters, like Mrs. Coulter. She's something Bad else. Mom. God. I, I'm sorry, I'm so into the toxic parent relationships in this book and the toxic relationship the parents have with each other. It's a fun time. <laughs> like, my commentary on this is not deep. Well, I mean, I guess it can be deep. Let's be deep for a second. Yeah. I think that Mrs. Coulter's also really interesting in terms of commentary on uh, femininity. And like I was saying earlier, she utilizes her white female privilege that is what she has to rely on. She's a very intelligent woman. We're told multiple times that like she she could be doing what Asriel's doing, you know, she could be out there being a scholar, a scientist, whatever. But she can't actually because she's a woman and, and she's not allowed to be. And so she's like super ambitious and trying to do things that will gain her power. Like she becomes the head of the General Ablation Board, which is like the secret church project how much power is that really bringing her like it's something but like again it's in secret it's like no one can know so she really like i think has discovered that the best way for her to gain power over men is to to play you know this hyper feminine certainly sexualized for older people but very sweet for younger people or people not attracted to her like it it is a an interesting commentary on a woman caged by the system and not a very nice woman at that. My non-constructive comments are like, go, girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't. I, I do love like her and uh, Lyra's relationship and mm-hmm. how messy it is and complicated and her relationship with Asriel and how messy and complicated that is. I, I'm really excited to reread the parts with her in the upcoming books. Indeed. Another one of Pullman's criticisms against C.S. Lewis is that he's a sexist mother, which is very, very true. Yeah. And I see Mrs. Coulter as a direct rebuke against C.S. Lewis's idea that lipstick will send you to hell or that. But she's the worst. <laughs> indeed. But or, this is what it is. And C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, femininity is always downplayed in the sense that it's always trivialized. It's it's framed as trivial. Whenever mm. the girls are like, I like clothing, somebody has to step in, whether it's the narrator or some other character, to say, those stupid girls, they, they're so obsessed with trifles that they're missing the bigger point. And this book is showing how those very trifles can be very, very powerful tools. Loved that. I loved that. It shows how a female character operates within a sexist world, leveraging those sexist bits of society to garner herself some power. The question is, how fragile is that power? And the answer, it seems to be implied, is very, very fragile because, like you said, this is all happening happening in secrecy. If something f***s up, the church can just disown her. She's on very thin ground so that's cool to show her and and there's like there's a in the scene with mrs coulter and lyra interacting 
Lyra describes her as so beyond the female scholars that Lyra has met and interacted with in her life that she is basically a new sex. And I think it's interesting, especially casting Lyra as a girl in this book. And I think that's that's something that's very, very important because sexuality in girls especially is man oh man is it demonized (laughs) oh god you should be ashamed of yourself it's demonized in a way that it isn't for boys so casting lyra in this role as the main character and giving her someone that shows her how sexuality can be powerful it's very interesting and yeah I, too, want to see how it's elaborated on in the next couple of books, especially as Lyra grows and goes, spoiler alert, has her own sexual encounter, consensual sexual encounter, I should say. Again, that's something in this book that we see what I would describe as a non-consensual sexual assault. But to see how that gets developed later on in the series, because it's just... It really shows just how thoughtfully, just just how thoughtful Pullman was with those characters. And it never calls it out explicitly. There's never a point where Mrs. Coulter is talking to somebody and somebody says, <laughs> you're a woman, you don't have power here. There's never a moment like that. It's all very much just implied. But along with that subtlety is a certain incisiveness that really getting to the core of like how women especially by male writers how femininity gets trivialized and what what people miss when you trivialize femininity because if femininity is trivial why then is it that all these men are obsessed with women and obsessed with their sexuality and obsessed with this this and that So I very much appreciate Mrs. Coulter as a character who knows that she has to act subtly, is working within her means. And it also makes the moments when she sort of abandons that, for lack of a better term, feminine subtlety. Like that scene when her demon attacks Lyra's demon was really jarring, which is the point. Like it's really violent and unsettling and kind of disturbing. And I just wanted it to stop. And and it's like, well, yeah, that's like the only time that Mrs. Coulter can really act out and just physically coerce somebody else to into doing what she wants. There's this great description of that moment. They're they're arguing and Lara's saying about her bag, but it won't be in the way. It's the only thing I really like wearing. I think it really suits. She didn't finish the sentence because Mrs. Coulter's demon sprang off the sofa in a blur of golden fur and pinned Pantalimon to the carpet before he could move. Lyra cried out in alarm, and then in fear and pain, as Pantalimon twisted this way and that, shrieking and snarling, unable to loosen the golden monkey's grip. Only a few seconds, and the monkey had overmastered him, with one fierce black paw around his throat and his black paws gripping the polecat's lower limbs. He took one of Pantalimon's ears in his other paw and pulled as if he intended to tear it off. Not angrily, either, but with a cold, curious force that was horrifying to see and even worse to feel. Lyra sobbed in terror. Don't, please, stop hurting us. Mrs. Coulter looked up from her flowers. Do as I tell you, then, she said. I promise. 
The golden monkey stepped away from Pantalaimon as if he was certainly bored. The description of how, because, like, again, the demons are their souls, right? Right. And, and there's a way in which, like, they do act somewhat in opposition uh, or in balance. Pan is always much more cautious than Lyra is. At one point, she calls him a coward, and he's like, yeah, I am. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? So there's this way in which they can also be, like, the voice of reason. They can perform, like, a lot of functions. But I do think there's something about, like, they show this very genuine part of you. And just the sort of coldness with which Mrs. Coulter is able to be cruel, I think, has always stayed with me. The image of the golden monkey hurting Pan and not doing it angrily, but just with this cold curiousness that's always stuck with me. It's one of my, like, strong memories from reading this book. It's the side of her that she's not allowed to really normally show this sort of disregard for others. Like, our society frames women as caretakers, as nurturers, the, like, compassionate, caring ones, right? And Mrs. Coulter's not that. I mean, you want to talk about sociopathic. (laughs) (laughs) She, for sure, is. I think it's interesting, too. I, I saw something again during my research. I had never actually realized this, but the golden monkey is one of the only significant demons we see who doesn't have a name. Mm. We never find out his name. And someone asked uh, Philip Pullman on Twitter, and they're like, why doesn't he have a name? And Philip Pullman was just like, look, the answer's not that deep. I just couldn't come up with one. <laughs> I just couldn't find one that satisfied me. <laughs> it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. I do think it's an interesting commentary that like her demon is isn't humanized for lack of a better word in the same way yeah and certainly like so one of the things is most of the time demons don't talk to anyone other than their own human or other demons but we see some other people's demons talk i believe we see asriel's snow leopard whose name i'm forgetting talk we see some other ones talk throughout the course of the series and there's something fascinating too about the golden monkey's silence And it just truly, I mean, I think the fact that it's a monkey as well, a golden monkey. I I think there's there's just a lot that's being done there to, like, set her up as this kind of alienating force. And uh, there's something, too, about, like, if we're talking about Chronicles of Narnia and and Clive and femininity and the whole lipstick gate, (laughs) I think part of Pullman's point as well as, as what you said, is that, like, obviously femininity can be great. I'm not anti-feminine things. But femininity is also, to some degree, forced upon women. Susan liking lipstick and nylons is not as much of a choice as it might appear to be. Mm. She is, we are told that she's the pretty, the pretty one, you know? Like, to some degree, she's kind of, this is expected of her. This is something society wants from her at the same time that they want to condemn her for it. And I think that, like, again, you see that Mrs. Coulter, in the contrast to the other female scholars who do have no power and, and have no authority and are kind of looked upon as these pitiable things, Mrs. Coulter, by embracing her beauty and these, like, very feminine things, is able to create this fragile sort of power but that maybe that's not what she would want it maybe she would have wanted to be like the 
boring scholar ladies? Like, does she have a choice in choosing lipstick and nylons? Yeah, especially if she wants power. I don't think she could achieve it. Certainly cannot achieve it as a quote-unquote female scholar. And it's really pointed that they're female scholars. They are not scholars. And even scholars themselves are not powerful. And, And we do the kind of other bit of feminine action, I guess you could say, that she took is trying to marry up. She married somebody of some renown to try to get access to power. And when that didn't really work out, I mean, Asriel killed him, so it didn't work out. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. she also cheated on him and had a baby with someone else. But Right. Because and it seems like Asriel was maybe the only person who had a smidgen of actual respect right. for her. And then and we find out the reason that she has any power at all is that she's the basically the only person willing to take on this taboo subject of dust, mm-hmm. willing to go to the measures that the church deems necessary to figure out how to kill dust, the influence of dust, which, again, in the church's mind is or a manifestation of the original sin. So she contains multitudes and so many there's just like kind of these inherent contradictions to her character because she at times feels so feminine and warm and and loving and motherly. And then at other times, she is a cold ass motherfucker who will rip the souls away from children kind of because she can. She's playing into that contradiction where she is both the mother figure, she's the Madonna, and the whore. She, you, you can kind of see the seams when they catch on to certain things, like that mm-hmm. moment with Pan being attacked by the golden monkey. I don't know if this will be developed in the books, but in the show, the character of Mrs. Coulter, she's very much played as having active disdain for her demon. And there's a sense that it's that she really just hates what her demon represents for her with this attachment to Dutch, uh, to dust. You don't necessarily get that. You might like... Again, it's, I don't remember that being a thing in the books, but again, I've only read the second and third one once, so I could be wrong. But I would, what I would say in regards to that is that you could definitely see the fact that the golden monkey is never named, which means that Mrs. Coulter never tells people the name of the monkey. It feels like more like a tool than an actual being. And maybe that's part of also the fact that the golden monkey seems to be able to go further distance, further away from Mrs. Coulter than other characters in this book and their demons. I think it's probably a stretch to say that she hates demons, but given what she's doing, given what we know about the golden monkey, I'm not going to fault anybody. And I'm certainly not going to fault the show for reading it as such. It makes sense. It makes sense for what she's trying to do, right? She sees the demons as the cause of bringing sinfulness to people and why they fall from innocence. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think it's... I'm trying to remember if there was a reason for that in later books, but we'll find out, I guess. I'm not going to strain my mind. Yeah, it's interesting that they chose to do that in the show because I definitely wouldn't have thought that specifically because she hasn't had the operation 
that mm -hmm. the uh, other people at the facility have had to separate her from her demon. I think you're right about there being some, she generally believes they're a bad thing, but I think that she's seems unwilling to part with her own, so I'm not sure I can buy any particular disdain for the golden monkey. I guess my counter-argument to that would be that the reason she doesn't separate herself from her, you likened it to a lobotomy. So of course Mrs. Coulter doesn't want to lobotomize herself, but if she doesn't want to be a part of her demon but realizes that she needs to, I could see that being a source of resentment. Yeah, I think I just... Uh... I, I will have to wait until the next couple of sure. books to give my opinion, because I don't see it at this point, but there could be something in the next two books that I, I'm forgetting about. So I also think that her relationship in general to motherhood is actually similarly complicated, because like we're told that she didn't want Lyra, like was offered the chance to have Lyra, and she was like, nope, I want nothing <laughs> to do with her. And then despite that, then goes and retrieves her later and seems to, like, want to keep her as this kind of pet, but not in, unless she's in a certain way. But then also, like, uh, there's just something, like, very complicated about her feelings about whether or not she wants to be a mother. I mean, I think with both her and Asriel, their feelings are, like, they don't <laughs> want to be inconvenienced by their child. But yeah. at the same time, now that they have one, they would like to keep having one that is safe and whole. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's really funny dynamic honestly <laughs> because they're both they both get this moment of being terrified something's gonna happen to Lyra mm. and which I referenced in the summary like the bare like the nicest thing I can say about them is that they don't want their child to <laughs> be severed <laughs> but the it is interesting that like you would think because they show absolute no real interest in her like i guess mrs coulter does to some degree but like that also seems to be partially because she wants the alethiometer and she knows she seems to know something's gonna happen with lyra but like they do not give a like i said azrael just and leaves her there next to the dead body of her best friend <laughs> mrs coulter does not want her for the longest time but they're both so horrified by the thought of her being severed from pan like, they see that about to happen, and they know it might potentially kill her. Well, like, that it will kill her. No one survived this yet. So, like, it's not just the separating. It's that she, it would kill her. And they're both so horrified by that idea. Azrael, who wants more than anything to go to the other world and destroy dust, looks at her and he's like, I didn't ask for this. And I, I'm so interested, like, especially because Azrael does not even try and play father. He is not, like, yeah. having one ounce of that. He seems to have some degree of compassion for her but like even, even compassion is a strong word but like mrs coulter does have this moment of trying to play sort of the mother the complicatedness of that for her must be especially interesting in that same thing of like again women are supposed in this world's mind to be these like nurturing mother figures and her desire to do that, she seems to have some to do that for Lyra, but also it seems like her resentment, like she did not originally want Lyra. She never tells Lyra she's her mother. In fact, we don't even get that scene in this book. Like as far as Mrs. Coulter knows, Lyra doesn't know. Like they don't have that discussion at any point. I'm also interested to see that more in, in other books. There's this uh, moment when Azrael and Mrs. Coulter are like making the <laughs> out at the end. We're like... <laughs> 
Asriel's like, come with me, babe. She's like, I daren't. And he's like, you dare not? Your child would come. Your child would dare anything and shame her mother. And Skuller says, uh, then take her and welcome. She's more yours than mine, Asriel. Not so. You took her in. You tried to mold her. You wanted her then. She was too coarse, too stubborn. I'd left it too late. So there's just like such weirdness there and like in a fascinating way. I'm so excited to see more of it. Yeah, I imagine she resents to some extent being a mother for various reasons. I don't think she was like trying to get pregnant. Uh, They clearly don't have birth control. Seems like her and Azrael are um, really physically into each other, so <laughs> I imagine they didn't have much restraint. Those are skin tight. How do you get into those pants, baby? You can start by buying me a drink. Having the child probably ruined her reputation. It certainly got her husband killed, so she wasn't able to like, use that as a tool. It seems to have, to some degree, driven her and Azrael apart. We're given the impression, up until that last moment at the end where they're making the f*** out, everyone seems to act like they despise each other. So, like, she seems to have, like, I wouldn't assume a lot of resentment about being a mother, but then she still chooses to come take Lyra in and try and mold her. And she seems to enjoy that experience. It's also fascinating in regards to the fact that they're both parents. And you would think... Being a parent would bring with it some sympathy that would carry over to other children, but that is clearly not the case. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're like any child but my child. They're happy to murder all of the children, which is very unsettling. <laughs> uh, it's the thing where they see other people as a means to an end, and in their minds the ends justify all the means except the one which is killing killing lyra and i i don't know what that said i don't know if it's just like a purely instinctual thing of like no she's mine or if it's like some other thing in their plan where they know that she has this destiny it's so baffling it seems more emotional than the Justiny thing. They have emotional reactions to that. That is the biggest reaction we see from either of them. It's just hard to feel the love. There's not a lot of love yeah, to I don't... between those two characters. And maybe they love their daughter. <laughs> but honestly, I don't think so. I don't think it's... No, I don't if think it's it love. is love... It's a very selfish kind of love. Mm, yes, I think it's that. I don't know if it, if it's like a thing of validation that they see her as a potential source of validation. Because why raise, why would Mrs. Coulter raise her to be basically to go against Lyra's nature as this rapscallion, if not to serve her own interests? And there is a, a couple of times where it's mentioned at that party where a couple of the guests mention like, oh, Mrs. Coulter is going to use you, Lyra, as basically as an assistant. And she is actually introduced to people as Mrs. Coulter's assistant. But it seems that there were plans on Mrs. Coulter's part to use Lyra to kidnap more children. So is it is it just a means of like furthering herself? Or is that the only way that she can show her love? Because she's I don't I don't know. It's it's messy, but it feels appropriately messy. Yeah, I think that 
I mean, again, like, Asriel moves her out of the nunnery into Oxford. Uh-huh. Why? Unclear. There there seems to be some... Sir, and, like, Mrs. Coulter doesn't need Lyra to do anything. Like, Mrs. Coulter's having a fine time rounding up the children. There's been no issues. Mm-hmm. But, like, as soon as Asriel's in prison, what does Mrs. Coulter do but go to Oxford and get her kid? There is this weird... I think you're right to call it a sort of possessiveness. Like, Asriel wants her at Oxford where he can, like have more control he doesn't want her in the church's hands he wants her somewhere where he can keep her safe to some degree but like keep her mrs coulter wants to keep her they don't want her harmed they want to keep her but they don't necessarily want to keep her with them necessarily they just want to keep her and i think there is something to say i don't fully believe in this and and so i would understand me push back on this supposedly we do instinctively parents form instinctive bonds and love for their children and vice versa and i don't think that's fully true i mean i think you have to earn and deserve that love but i do think there is something innately there that draws you to that person i wouldn't call this like love parental love per se but like i think there's something a very twisted version of that going on that's not necessarily something Either of them want. I don't think they want to care about Lyra. But they clearly do. Not in a, like, healthy, constructive way. Not in a way that, like, gets her anything other than the bare minimum of care for her safety and the desire to possess her. But they seem to have something there. And if I remember, okay, one of my, like, very strong memories from the third book has to do with how, what ends up happening to Azrael and Mrs. Coulter. And if I remember correctly, it, like, plays out in a way that just further complicates how trying to think about them as parents which i'm like again really excited to reread and see uh because i remember it strongly because i remember being like again i was sobbing the whole time through this book and uh my memories are not strong but i do think it was a really good ending for them if i remember correctly so i just had an idea so at the heart of this book is the question of free will and destiny and blah 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 and we don't necessarily see those discussions happen with Asriel or Mrs. Coulter explicitly, but it is very clear that they're both very stubborn people. They both want their way. They don't like being controlled. Um, and in fact, they will take every effort to assert their own self-control, whether that's like the kind of superficial thing with Asriel where the church basically tells him that he's not allowed to research, research dust, but he does it anyway and finagles his way into getting money to do more research for it. Even when he, like you brought up, even when he's quote unquote in prison by the bears, he still manages to get all the research elements he needs to continue his research. And I think with Mrs. Coulter, perhaps even arguably more so with Mrs. Coulter, because she has the added aspects that she's a woman in a in a world that is incredibly misogynistic it's her trying to assert her own will onto things and the thing is when you become a parent suddenly you have this added responsibility in your life where you can't it's not just about you anymore and your responsibility your circle of responsibility widens to include the child and so 
if you are a good parent, a certain level of selflessness will take over because now you are responsible for another human being. And I could definitely see Mrs. Coulter and Asriel resenting that fact that their spheres of responsibility have grown with this child and making every effort to not have to deal with that responsibility. But then, again, they still want to claim ownership over Lyra. Kind of. <laughs> Lyra doesn't know they're her parents until much later in the book. Man, I don't I think everyone's just kind of confused in this book and they don't really know what they <laughs> want and they and they get like they're getting so caught up on this dust business and what it means and Azrael's like I'm going to kill death and Mrs. Coulter's like I'm going to <laughs> murder children to try to defeat original sin but they don't want to do it to their own child. It's uh, just, I don't, what do they want? I don't know. And maybe they probably don't know. <laughs> they don't understand oh. fully what, what this means for them. Yeah. I mean, I think they know what they want. They just don't know how to deal with Lyra in that. They, I think they know precisely what they want. It's just that like, they don't know what they want in terms of Lyra. This Coulter probably knew her feelings were more complicated for all the reasons I said. But I think Azrael was just like, God, I'm going to about this kid. I don't think he expected her showing up to come up that much. Mm. He had been like imagining scenarios. <laughs> he was like, what would happen if my daughter showed up? Like, I don't think he would yeah. expect that it would bother him as much as it did bother him. But yeah, I think that they, yeah, just don't know quite what to do with that relationship either. Which is fair because I think too, like, like you said, they're like people who like being in control. They did not plan for Lyra. <laughs> they did not want her. I think they resent her that too, right? Like they that this was something they did not plan for or want that happened to them. I don't know. I'm I just I like the the, the family dynamic. It it does a lot of good stuff for me. It's like that moment in teen dramas where the child yells at the parents you wish i was dead because then your life would be better or whatever it's very dramatic and whatever which of course is not true no parent wants their child dead not even these ones but it's like i feel like they would hesitate for a second they would really debate but what if lyra had never existed right yeah i think that if they could go back and make the choice <laughs> i don't think they would have her being more but I think that's different than, like, getting your child dead. I suppose. What do I know? I'm not a parent. Uh, not either. And I certainly hope I would be a better one than these ones if I was a parent. But it would be pretty hard to be worse. It would be. They set a pretty low bar to clear there. But they are great to read about. And uh, <laughs> they deserve each other. I wish them the best in their messy relationship dynamics. Well, uh, we've been kind of dancing around the theological aspect of this book. So let's talk about that. You two are hungry. It's a big day. We're going to kill God. Again, this book doesn't fully dive into that. Where we see it the most is at the very end with that conversation between Asriel and Lyra about the book of Genesis. And I went down a very deep rabbit hole about the 
the story of Eden and just like, what does the tree of knowledge of good and evil mean? And I know that I could talk about that for hours on end and it wouldn't necessarily be relevant for this story, for this book. So I feel like you should take the lead before I really go off the rails. <laughs> but you're the one who did all the research, apparently. I mean, I'll bring some of it up because I do think it's fascinating. Like, okay, I'm sorry. I just, I can't. Go, go I have to. go. So there's, there's a lot of debate surrounding the story of Eden and how it should be interpreted. Probably the most common interpretation is that Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then they did, and then they were punished and kicked out of Eden and sentenced to die, basically. And that's why everyone dies and why there's suffering in the world. And I think... For the most part, that's this book's interpretation of that story. But I also found like some fascinating stuff where there's like one rabbi who argued that a more proper translation of knowledge would actually be desire. And that was the issue is that when Adam and Eve ate of this fruit, they felt desire for themselves rather than desiring to worship God. They suddenly had their own desires for their own benefit. And then there's this other idea that it was a literary device back in the day that when you offered opposing objects or, or descriptors or whatever, so in this case, good and evil, that they weren't literally talking about good and evil. It was just a way of like presenting a spectrum of things. So the tree of knowledge of everything. Right. And that eating fruit from the tree of knowledge, what it gave Adam and Eve is this ability to judge, to decide the morality of things. And then the arguments from there, obviously that's in direct opposition to God because God is supposed to be the judge of all things. And if you have these people coming in saying, no, we can judge too, it's like, uh-oh, that's challenging God's authority. And then there's like arguments that it was like God trying to protect his own godhood or whatever. So he had to kick them out or God was jealous. So he kicked them out or whatever X, Y, Z reasons. And it's all very complicated. It's all very fascinating to me. I am not an expert. I just find this stuff fascinating. And I also find this book's interpretation of it fascinating because it very much is painting it as like the shame that's felt in this version of the story is tied to sexuality and because the demon i think in the same scene uh, asriel makes some comment about how there is precedent yes. for cutting children in the form of castration very much the book is tying demons to genitalia to sexual organs but there's just so many other places where demons are tied to sexuality in general. The loss of innocence is tied to one's own discovery of one's sexuality. Well, as yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, like the Bible itself does that. The first thing they do is they are ashamed of their nudity and they put on clothes. Mm -hmm. And what reason would they have to be ashamed of their nudity except for sexual reasons? I mean, that's why we cover up our bodies is we cover up the parts of us that might 
cause other people to want to bang us or like sex organs and stuff. Uh-huh. Like that's mostly what we're covering up. So I think the Bible itself kind of lends to that, that reading. But yeah, I mean, I think certainly interpreting uh, the Adam and Eve myth is it leaves so much to, to think about. One of my favorites in the Christian mythos, I'm just going to keep calling it myths. Sorry, buds. Um, the myth is cool. And I think that, if I remember correctly, in Paradise Lost, it's very much implied, well, not implied, I think it's directly told. I mean, God God knows everything. Fate is set. It's not going to change. And so the choice is kind of inherently a, a false one. He knows they're going to fall. And so that I think it's interesting because of the way that fate is a focus in this book with the quote I read a long time ago. In a full other episode, because that's how we do this. But the fact that, like, is Seferina, Pekina is talking about how, like, fate is set, that they're all running on tracks, essentially, and that Lyra's entire purpose is that she's going to destroy destiny. And I feel like that's really speaking to the version in Paradise Lost, where Eve's choice is not really a choice. It is something that God knows she's going to do. And so it's it's honestly kind of cruel if you think about it that way, because it it means that, like, he's just like putting the little dolls down and (laughs) Mm -hmm. watching them go through the motions. And so, like, having, I guess, spoiler alerts for the next book, having Lyra as positioned as a second Eve who gets to actually make a choice in the end, that final choice and destroy fate and destiny entirely. Again, feels like very much like Pullman talking back against uh, Paradise Lost. A part of me feels like Pullman is oversimplifying certain aspects of the, as you said, Christian myth. Because I, I just think there's a lot more happening in that myth than just that. I get why he's saying it because sexuality is the thing that christians really harp upon and so he's addressing specifically that and that's why he's using this myth in that way to illustrate the sexuality and how that has been used as the basis to vilify people to shame people to control people to allow this institution to come into power to say you are corrupted you need our help to become clean again And if you believe that the corruption is innate, then you might be inclined to take extreme measures to cut away the sin, so to speak, and leave a cleaner version of a person that also just happens to be a husk of who the person was before. Uh, I get I get all that. I get where Pullman's going with that, and I think it's fair to to judge and criticize the church, both within this book and outside of the book, for doing that sort of thing. I don't know. There's just, there's, it's not just this moment, but there are a couple of elements where I think Pullman takes pot shots at the church that are just not fair or are misleading. There's this scene where they talk about, I think the word is oblates, oblates which describes this practice 
in medieval times where families would give up their children to the church mm -hmm. where they would become monks or nuns or whatever. And the way the narrative frames it, it's like, oh, yeah, they're basically like giving their children up to become slaves to the church. And, uh, you know, that's misrepresenting the history of it. I'm sure there were cases where it was a very negative thing for certain individuals. But it is also just the the thing is that they were <laughs> these oblates were free to leave the church if they wanted to. So it's, it's just things like that. So it's like when we get this long passage from the book of or, or like a different version of the book of Genesis, I'm like, OK, what is Pullman trying to say here? Is he being fair? Is he treating this? Because if you're going to criticize Chronicles of Narnia for being propaganda, you better well not be participating in your own propaganda. And I do think to some degree Pullman is with this scene because he, he is framing it with these demons. He's framing it as like, this is the basis of the original sin. This is how the church has used it. This is blah, blah, blah. And he's minimizing the complexity of it for his own narrative purposes, which is understandable, but Nonetheless, I I just think he's doing the same thing that he's criticizing the church for doing. I mean, uh, the thing is, the medieval church was like, I guess I think this is fair. <laughs> <laughs> they were out of control. And regardless of the oblate thing in particular, like there was just a lot they were doing that was was not good, to say the least. Mm -hmm. So I think that, like, yeah, it would be unfair to the modern church, which certainly still has its uh, issues, but at least is advocating for vaccination. Thanks, Catholic Church. It's fair if we're ba if Pullman is basing this off of the medieval Catholic Church. I think it's fair. <laughs> I'm not bothered the way you are by it and i think that to be fair he has uh, certainly a lot of critiques at the chronicles of narnia about like the christianity one-on-oneness of them mm -hmm. but there are a lot of you know chronicles of narnia out there and there are not as many things warning about the dangers of religion out there and you know as much as it might be hypocritical am i bothered by there being another opinion nah you know, I read these books when I was questioning my, like, religion for the first time, and it was really helpful to see another opinion, and really eye-opening, because it just wasn't out there easily accessible to me. Like, this was, the internet existed, but um, I believe at the point I read this, I didn't have my own computer, so I wasn't, like, roaming freely on the internet. <laughs> and uh, it was just really helpful to have, like, this other way of looking at things presented to me. Um, and I did have the context, like I was really into medieval history as a kid, so like I did have the context on the Catholic Church, so I wasn't like, whoa. Yeah, I would agree. And then in, in an ideal world, no one would be taking pot shots at each other. But like, I like that he didn't pull any punches. I do hear you about how this this book, and I and I think because I know this is a children's book, quote unquote. Yes. 
<laughs> All the air quotes. Yeah, it does seem to be aimed at like the 15 year old who is starting to feel some kind of skepticism about what he's been told about life or she has been told about life, but doesn't know where to start or how to put it to words. And then this book comes along and says it in really point blank ways. Cause I know I felt the same thing too. It gave me an outlet to explore feelings about my own Christianity that I just didn't even know where to start before. And it was fun coming back to this book in that light because there are certain pieces of logic that I look back on where I'm like, I for sure thought that was thought provoking back then. Like the whole logic of um, if Mrs. Coulter doesn't like dust and Asriel doesn't like dust, it must mean that it's actually good, which is very faulty logic. I mean, it makes sense here because obviously, but replace dust with any number of things. Asriel and Mrs. Coulter both think that uh, murdering their child is bad. That doesn't mean murdering their child is good. Indeed. <laughs> the point is, there are some elements that feel like the edgy meme lord thing of just like, mm. I'm an atheist and I'm so much smarter than you stupid Christians. And I don't think Pullman is... He's certainly polemical, but I wouldn't say when you like read interviews with him, he doesn't necessarily, he's not going to be like, I owned the Christians, you know, score one for the atheists. That's not the type of person he is. But there uh, is danger in some parts of this book of reading it that way. It does come across as obnoxious, which is maybe it's fair then that the character I've considered the most obnoxious in this book is the one voicing these opinions. Yeah, and I guess maybe the question is, like, with that, I mean, Asriel is anti-church. Mm -hmm. Like, how much of that is just Asriel? Like, he legitimately does not like these people. You know what I mean? So, like, I guess, are we are we saying too much, like, that this is... And clearly, Pullman's not, like, telling us that Asriel is the authority we should be listening to. Yes. So, like, how much of this is just Asriel's character and that we shouldn't be ascribing this to Pullman? Well, I don't know if we can ascribe it to, but Pullman has said these similar things as this in public about the church, the quote-unquote church. Yeah, but if you're reading this as a kid without that context. I, d I just think that the way it is presented, because there, there isn't... And I don't think we'll, we ever will get a character like this of a sympathetic member of the church. Up to this point, it's been basically Mrs. Coulter, and she's god-awful. Up to this point in the book, we're told that they've been trying to assassinate Asriel. They're doing all these actions and blah, blah, blah. So it, it doesn't paint the church in a very good light. And... Look, far be from me to defend the church. I have so many problems with the church. I just think that if we're going to criticize a book series for doing one thing, and then we do the same thing, or Pullman does the same thing in his own book series, that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it understandable. Just because Asriel is anti-church doesn't make his actions right. 
there's just a a bit of discomfort from me looking back at this book. But like, I guess the thing is, is that Chronicles of Narnia, as you pointed out earlier, are advocating specifically for Christianity, not necessarily for the organized version of it, right? And Pullman is specifically having a go at religious organizations, especially ones that are tyrannical mm-hmm. and fear-mongering and all of those things. Is he specifically having to go at Christianity itself? Like, I don't think so. At least not in this book. Um, Certainly that could come into question in later books if I'm remembering things correctly. And I might revise my feelings then. But, like, he's not out here being like Christianity itself is the worst. He's being out here like the Christian church is the worst. Which, again, considering the horrors that the Christian church has done. I mean, we just talked our last episode about like the whole missionary project right. and the way that the church is a tool of the state and colonization and imperialization. Like I can't help but feel like you are kind of equating two things falsely. Chronicles of Narnia are backdoor Christianity. This, at this point, I won't say it doesn't have atheist overtones, <laughs> but like I would say what's actually being the, the backdoor thing is being like, Hey, <laughs> Don't trust organized religion, which, like, can organized religion be a positive, beautiful thing? Sure. But has organized religion, at least in the Western world, and specifically Christianity, been kind of, like, the worst? Uh-huh, yeah. I think it's fair to call that shit right out. My concern about whether Pullman is striking at Christianity or the church You said something about how it's understandable to read sex and sexuality into the Adam and Eve story in particular because they're like ashamed of their nudity. But the thing is, the nudity, at least the way I read it, the nudity is a metaphor Uh, because like, (laughs) I mean, this is a story that features a talking (laughs) snake, Morgan. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the whole thing's a metaphor. Right, it's it's steeped in metaphor. So I don't think we're really meant to take it literally. I would argue the shame exhibited by Adam and Eve in the story, the way I read it, it's more like a moral shame. There are some scholars that argue the fruit itself in the story of Adam and Eve isn't really anything special. What's important is or what really matters is that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. In The Golden Compass, we get a version of that Adam and Eve story that focuses heavily on the sexuality angle, which in and of itself isn't necessarily an issue. And if it had been framed as this was the interpretation of Asriel or the interpretation of the magisterium, that would be one thing and that'd be totally fine. But it's not that. Pullman rewrote the early chapters of Genesis to make it clear that eating the fruits of the tree of knowledge is explicitly tied to Adam and Eve finding or discovering the true forms of their demons. And as we know, a demon assumes its true form when a child reaches puberty. And we've also seen throughout this book that demons and sexuality are constantly linked And I think this is where the stumbling block comes for me, because what 
Pullman has done. He has specifically rewritten the story from the Bible. This is not somebody telling their version of the story or interpreting the story. He's specifically rewritten it. And in my opinion, what he's done is he's taken this magical, mystical, ambiguous, complex story and he's turned it into this superficial kind of morality tale about how sex is bad. Again, if he had framed that as how people were interpreting the story, that'd be fine. We've seen Christians doing that. They've used the story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve to control other people's sexuality. The Second Baptist Church, which is just off of Route 3, posted this sign outside the church. It reads, Jesus made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. But what Pullman's doing here, by rewriting the text of the Bible itself, he's rewriting it in a way that casts the story as this extremely narrow-minded viewpoint that, in my opinion, seems to be suggesting that the original text is just as equally narrow-minded. And that's where things get really iffy for me because he's no longer attacking the institution of religion he's a, he's attacking the religion itself that reads really as really condescending to me i'm sure you disagree morgan but uh <laughs> I, I think you made a point earlier that this book was extremely valuable for you to give voice to your own skepticism and that I certainly agree with as well, because I felt the same way, especially when I first read it. The stumbling block for me is that as I've gotten older and have come back to these stories from the Bible that I first heard as a kid, I can appreciate them in the same way that I can appreciate all the books we read for our podcast. So when I see Pullman taking a story that to me is incredibly complex and making just really oversimplifying the story for his own purposes. I struggle with that. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's doing it intentionally or maliciously, but he is misrepresenting a fundamental story of Christianity. And ultimately, I just think that's counterproductive to what he's trying to do. I fundamentally disagree with your premise. Ooh, them fighting words. So I think that you are focusing too much. You are making it all about sex in a way. I don't think Pullman is actually making it. Uh, I see your point that like the demons betraying definitely does have something to do with sexuality. And I mean, I think here we're very clearly also relying on our memories of later books. Uh, I think that if we were just reading this first book, I'm not sure we would necessarily be having the same discussion. And so I think that's part of it. But also part of it is that you said that, like, demons have been shown to be linked to sexuality, and they have. But, like, the big thing that we're told about demons settling, which is what gets added to that story, is that it's once someone has self-knowledge, essentially, once they're settled into who they are, mm -hmm. which is a part of growing up and maturing. And it's it's knowledge, which makes sense. They ate from the tree of knowledge. And you, you know, earlier did the great talk about how the good and evil part could, in some interpretations, just be forgotten. It's the tree of knowledge. And they then had knowledge of self along with everything else that they didn't have before. And so their demons settled. 
we talked too about how Pullman is pushing back against these ideas of childhood as the ideal state, right? Of the Edenic nature of childhood, right? And that sort of innocence. And then he's trying to talk about the importance of growing up and maturing and adulthood. And certainly sexuality and sex is a part of that. But I don't think in this moment or in any other, he's saying that that is the, the sum total of it. I definitely see that him taking a much larger view of the myth that is much more accurate to what you were talking about seeing in it and that I think we see throughout. And it means we certainly see in today's society where like children are like held up as these little angels and they don't, <laughs> it's, it's represented as this ideal form of innocence that then we lose as we gain knowledge of the world and ourselves. And that's really what Pullman is trying to talk about Adam and Eve discovering when they eat the apple is, is knowledge that we would all gain as we grow older and become adults. I see where you're getting that reading, although I do think you're not just drawing from this book when you're doing that. But I think that you are, I think you're maybe having a Clive moment and being a little <laughs> too worried about the children and the sex. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, I think it's it's more fundamental than that. It's just the fact that he's taking a story and he's modifying it and there's there's this line about he uh asriel says like the text is corrupt and whatever and it's like well yeah pullman because you f***ing rewrote it yourself to me it's just frustrating because he removes a lot of the magic for me pullman's version of it is much more point blank whether that's specifically involving sex which i think that's a big element of it but also the idea of growing up, it just doesn't feel like he's necessarily giving it the weight that it deserves. I mean, I guess it just comes down to, to the fact that I, I just don't like his version. I think his version's very oversimplified. It, in the same way that I think like C.S. Lewis's versions of Christian stories are oversimplified, and it just rubbed me the wrong way. So, you know... If I'm going to criticize C.S. Lewis for that, I'm going to criticize Pullman for doing the same thing. I don't like it. Okay. I mean, I can accept that you don't like it. Although I do think it's funny to hear you arguing for uh, being upset about bad adaptation, shall we say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe it's lost the essence of the story in adaptation. Mm -hmm, Casey? Mm -hmm. Oh no, I'm the hypocrite. I, the hypocrite was inside the house the whole time. It was me. Uh, let's let's give uh Mr. Pullman a chance, shall we? I mean, like he's just kind of introducing this in the last however many pages. And we know that the Adam and Eve story plays a significant role going forward, because that's something we do remember. So I think we should give him a chance to elaborate on it some. I certainly have, like, none of the issues you have, clearly. It doesn't bother me at all. I think that the fact that they eat from the tree of knowledge in the first place has always given it a pretty clear interpretation to me, but, like, <laughs> maybe I'm not thinking about it enough. <laughs> and I also think that, like, you know, there have been a lot of, obviously, adaptations that simplify the 
the story. Uh, so I think I'm I'm unbothered because I do feel like this one at least is making a honest attempt to grapple with it. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's making an attempt to grapple with yeah like a specific interpret like how the story specifically has been interpreted interpreted wow. Uh, interpreted (laughs) by like a large group of people um if it's flattening it then i feel like it's flattening it in the service of dealing with this specific interpretation and i think that's fair because like i said i think a lot of people have that interpretation of that story so like yeah if he wants to take that on then i'm fine with him flattening the myth in order to attack that sort of viewpoint I just disagree fundamentally with that perspective because I think it's doing a disservice to the text itself to say that, well, people are interpreting it in this very narrow way. So to make my point, I'm going to rewrite it in that very same narrow way in order to criticize the people interpreting it. Maybe there's a way to do that well and to make your point, but I don't think he does it here. For me, what it does is to be suggesting that there's not really much else to the story. And I'm going to dispute the your uh, take that, oh, it's clear that they're eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. That's a, it's plain as day what that means. No, Morgan. No, it is not. Because <laughs> there's, there's translations issues. There's the context of when it's written. There are all sort of things to consider. And there's just also these kind of inherent contradictions within the story after having spent like hours reading about this story, reading the interpretations of this story, reading the vastly different takes that people have. I just can't believe that it's as simple as what Pullman's giving us here. Well, okay. But here, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to argue with you on this. I'm going to get my argument on <laughs> because I, say so the big change he makes is that they're demons settle and all we're told about demons settling is it's just like something that happens as you grow up and mature and it like gives you sort of knowledge of yourself this is all we're told Mm -hmm. i'm not even sure there's anything else we can pick up contextually yet it's mentioned that it happens around puberty right as you grow up Yes. Right. But like, puberty is tied to sex. It's a, it's a sexual no, awakening. It's tied to, no, it's tied to growing up, Casey. I, I fundamentally disagree with the idea that puberty has anything to do with like a sexual. It has to do with growing up. And of course, yeah, growing up also includes your like sex organs maturing or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, it's a lot more than that. Puberty is like a ton more than just that. So like. I think that, again, you're putting, like, too much emphasis on that. I mean, like, I feel like puberty's, like, the bat last sort of big push between when you're, like, fully grown and when you're a kid. Anywho, all we're told is that the, the demon settled. That's the only addition he makes. One single addition. And, you know, I could probably interpret that in so many different ways if I lived in that world. Like, they probably have so many different interpretations for why demons settle in the first place Mm -hmm. like i bet you that's something debated in the world we're looking at it from the outside as a literary text and we're like ah yes this is clearly a symbol for this but if you live in that actual world it's not necessarily as clear a symbol like how you said that the the clothes bit could have various meanings but like yeah if you're looking at it from an outsider perspective 
without all the context things that you named and the translation and the time, you're going to have a much more simpler reading of it. So I think that it's really not fair to be like this one single thing he added. One single thing is really like just destroying the mystery of this myth. When again, we're reading it as a literary text in which it's like we're much more able to like come to an easy interpretation as opposed to an actual like in the world religious text where we would have endless possibilities. I just don't see how you can read it without our own context that that this is a story that exists in our world that we've read and heard and seen and whatever so many times. We know this story. Any changes will necessarily call attention to themselves. I don't know. Like, I, I hear your point. I just, I think you're giving Pullman too much credit in that regard. I think it's very clear what he's trying to do with this instance of taking a one of the most well-known Bible passages and modifying it specifically to get at this larger point about how people have used this myth for their own ends. And we see that Asriel's using it to, for his own ends. We see the Magisterium's using it for their own ends. Everyone's using it for their own ends. I just think it cheapens the, the myth. I just don't like that. I don't like that. I don't want to come off as like a Bible apologist again. I don't consider it sacred in any way, except insofar that I consider all literature sacred. You know, it's it's this general kind of attitude because it's also t kind of tied to the way he talks about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's like, okay, buddy, like you're very cool. You're the contrarian walking into the room being like, Lord of the Rings, it isn't very good. It sucks, actually. And it's just like, hmm, but have you really, where is this coming from? Are you just being polemical for the sake of being polemical? Or is this like a really thought out, reasoned argument that you've put together based on that text? No, it's not. I think he's just being <laughs> polemical for the sake of being polemical. And I think he's doing that same thing here. It's hard for me to, to pinpoint exactly where I feel that, but it's just too simple for me. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I think it just comes down to like, you're maybe a little more uh, protective about the myth than I am. Because I, for me, I'm like, that's funny. It's funny because uh, <laughs> I don't know. Have we talked about adaptation on the podcast? So does anyone like <laughs> know about our giant adaptation debate? I, we've, but, we've always referenced it, but I don't think we've ever actually talked about it yet. Right. So it, like normally like you're on the side of like, do what you will. Indeed. Be free. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, something of the original spirit must be preserved and, and carried forward. And I think the funny thing is that myths are probably one of the few areas in which I'm like, eh. Like, its entire point is kind of to be transformed and reinterpreted. So, like, for me, I'm like, yeah, go have fun. <laughs> I, I will say, you know, there are certain limits. I think that because Pullman is coming from a Christian background, I feel like he has the right to do that. Mm -hmm. If he came from another background then i might feel a little bit more like hey not your turf right i do think that you 
in order if you're going to mess around with a myth, if it's a still practiced religion specifically, I mean, like anyone could do whatever they want with the Greek myths, like who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, I I feel like because he was raised Christian in a predominantly Christian society, like he should be free to do with that myth whatever he wants. It's not at all <laughs> sacred to me. I just think that's our right. If it's our cultural myth, then we get to, like, have fun with it. I love the fact that the rarest of rare occurrences where I would be inclined to agree with you about adaptations, it's in the one <laughs> area where where you're the complete opposite opinion that you usually are. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like even when we could agree we still can't agree <laughs> this is so ridiculous i think he's gonna take what i would consider actual pot shots in the upcoming books mm -hmm. like i again i i don't particularly see them here but i i feel like you could be right i mean the books are about killing god yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just think he did a very bad adaptation of the Adam and Eve story. So you can hold that against me for the rest of time. Anytime I, <laughs> I tell you, oh, who cares if it's a quote unquote bad adaptation? You'll be like, Casey, you cared. <laughs> I do feel a little smug. I gotta admit. Mm. I'm glad you got something out of this. <laughs> I hope our readers, no, our listeners, Jesus, readers, our listeners got something <laughs> out of this. Yeah, no, I'm glad we filmed the uh, film. Look, wow, <laughs> both of us are just totally mixing mediums. How did this happen? We're smarter than this. Apparently not. I am looking forward to the next books. Like I said, the subtle knife was my favorite as a kid. What the heck is going to happen? I don't know. I mean, I do know. But I, I, well, <laughs> I actually am not sure I do because the subtle knife is the one I remember the least because I remember a lot about the ending, but I don't remember a bunch about the middle. I mean, like I remember Will and I remember the knife and what the knife does vaguely. That is about all the plot points I remember from book two. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be a fun, a fun ride of discovery. Yeah, we'll see if experience is indeed all it's cracked up to be maybe we both hate yeah it. maybe i read it and i'm like it's still too dark <laughs> still too much for my little soul but you know what if i can do in fifth season i can do anything <laughs> and i say that in a fond way the fifth season is a great book and the series um the rogan earth trilogy is a great trilogy but i they are extremely dark so that's the point being made is that if I can live with that level of darkness and really love it, I can do, I can love anything. Anything's on the table. I do love the idea of closing this episode promoting a completely different book series <laughs> than the one we're reading. Well, yeah, like and subscribe. All that jazz. Buy these books from our bookshop affiliate link. Yeah. If you know of any really pretty copies... Uh, his drag materials. I am hopefully retrieving my set soon, but I think they're old and they might be dying. So I might be in the market for a, a new copy. So 
requirements are it's pretty. If you can suggest pretty book covers, I would appreciate it. If you want to buy Morgan a book, I don't know how you'll get it to her if you don't actually know her. But the best place to buy it at is bookshop.org slash shop slash reread podcast. Until next time, hasta la vista. Bye-bye.